Welcome to New Books in Political Science. My name is Heath Brown. Today I'll be talking with Kirk Rendazzo, who is the co-author of Checking the Courts, Law, Ideology, and Contingent Discretion. The book is published this year by SUNY Press. Kirk has published the book with his uh, co-writer, um, co-author Richard Waterman. I hope that you enjoy this interview that I did with Kirk. Welcome back to the New Books and Political Science podcast. Today, as I mentioned, I'll be talking, I am talking with Kirk Rendazzo, who is the author of the recently released Checking the Courts, Law, Ideology, and Contingent Discretion. Kirk, how are you doing today? I'm doing fine, thanks. Yeah, enjoyed reading the book and have lots to talk about. Before we get to the book, why don't you tell us just a little bit about yourself and also about your, your co-author, who, who isn't on the phone today? Sure. Uh, so I'll start with, with my co-author, um, Rick Waterman is a professor of political science at the University of Kentucky, and he was actually chair of the department when I was hired uh, in 2003. Um, I'm now at the University of South Carolina, uh, but I spent about five years at the University of Kentucky and got to know Rick very, very well. And that's sort of how this research project uh, got started. but Rick's research is primarily in along two different lines. He has one strand that looks at aspects of the U.S. presidency and the executive branch and another area that looks at the bureaucracy. Uh, my research is primarily in law and judicial politics. Um, and that's sort of how we came together was was sort of trying to bridge an area of um, overlapping branches and borrowing literatures from different fields to see if we could come up with a, a theory for judicial behavior. Yeah, yeah, and the collaboration seems like it's really paid off in, in a very interesting book. So let's talk about the book. Uh, you begin by going back to the founding of the country, um, and, and in doing so, you introduce uh, what is called uh, the invitation to struggle. Um, so to start our conversation, I wonder if you could just talk a little bit about where this idea comes from, uh, sort of where it sits historically as a way to begin our discussion of what you talk about much later. Sure. And, and I should say, so the, the invitation to struggle is a, a term coined by some, some other individuals, Corwin in particular. Uh, and it really, as you said, points to part of the framers of the Constitution and their desire to make sure that the power of government was divided across multiple branches. I mean, this is just sort of the basic theory of governance and what we know is the separation of powers. And really what that does is is kind of put each branch in a situation where in order to sort of enhance its own authority or maximize its own power, that branch comes into contact with or communication with the other branches who are each trying to do the exact same thing. And so we have this constitutional struggle that goes on and and we see it all the time. And we, we see it now, say, in international relations with the U.S., uh, trying to figure out how it's going to deal with the Islamic State uh, movement in the Middle East and whether the president has the authority to order attacks on ISIS or whether he needs congressional approval. And and 
this kind of overlapping authority causes each branch to struggle among the others, and it poses some really interesting constitutional questions, not the least of which is, how do we develop law in a system like that? And that's what Rick and I wanted to explore in this book. You know, this is such a fundamental question of representative democracy. And, you know, I think as you allude to, it's, it's sort of all around us. It's so embedded in the system. And, you know, this question of, of how does Congress influence the courts, you know, seems, seems so elementary. Um, and it seems like it would have been adjudicated long ago, but, but you suggest in the book that it, it really hasn't, particularly in the ways maybe that social scientists might try to adjudicate this. So I wonder if you could talk a little bit about this, this key question that um, really hasn't been answered and, and why it hasn't been answered previously. Well, yeah, and it, I mean, that I think is, is sort of the, the quintessential question is, is sort of who is responsible for developing law, which, which branch? And if you were to sort of ask the average individual, you would have some that might say, well, Congress develops the law because that's the branch that passes statutes. And others might say, well, no, it's the courts that develop the law because they rule on those statutes. And I would say from a from an academic standpoint, I think scholars have tended to give a little bit more deference to the courts maybe because they sort of move last in, in this game. You know, Congress passes a statute, the president signs it, it gets implemented and then litigated in, in the courts and judges sort of have the final say on whether a law is good or bad. And, and scholars have tended to adopt the position that because courts are moving last, their influence over the laws is probably a bit more proximate than anybody else. But part of the issue, and this is what Rick and I argue in the book, is that scholars typically have not had good ways to measure the law, and certainly not from any kind of systematic or empirical sense. And so it's difficult to then determine the extent to which a statute may influence the behavior of judges. And, and so that's what we try and, and do here to see if that the language of that law has any kind of systematic influence. In, in doing so, you, you approach this, you know, and it's in the title of the book, with this, this idea of contingent discretion. So before we get to some of the, you know, the, the very interesting um, empirical work, let's, let's talk about this theory. Walk us through this a bit. Um, what, what does this suggest? Well, so the one of the dominant theories in judicial politics is something called the attitudinal model. And, and it essentially just argues that judges, sort of similar to other politicians, act based on their own personal ideological preferences. And we kind of use that as a starting point to say, okay, all things being equal, Judges may want to rule on cases according to preferences. So conservative justices would would see the law one way and liberal judges would see it another way. But they don't have free reign to rule on those preferences. Um, 
that that the statutes or the laws themselves may actually dictate particular outcomes. And if judges are sensitive to the law, if they think the law is something that needs to be upheld in some kind of objective manner, then that law may actually affect their ability to rule according to their ideologies. And we tried to develop tests where we could see when maybe ideological preferences and the law were, were kind of working in the same direction or when they were working in different directions, just to see if there were different patterns of behavior that fell out. And, and something is, is um, uh, sort of complex and nuanced as discretion, as you mentioned, is, is very hard to measure. So how did you do it? You, you uh, me- measure in the book statutory detail. What is this, what is this me- uh, measure that, that you guys came up with? What, is it, what does it capture? Yeah, you're absolutely right. This is, a, this is a hard thing to try and measure. And we actually borrowed from the literature in bureaucratic politics. And this is where Rick's expertise came in very, very handy. There was some research done by John Huber and Chuck Shippen that literally count the number of words in a statute. They were looking at Medicare statutes, Medicare and Medicaid, and they count the number of words in a statute to see if longer statutes limit the discretion of bureaucratic agencies. And and sure enough, they find that that it does along predictable lines. And so based on that, Rick and I then asked, well, since judges are reading the same statutes that bureaucrats do, could we expect to see a similar effect um, with, with a couple of important caveats? You know, judges, first of all, get asked to rule just on a portion of a statute, not the entire statute, which is a little bit different than what agencies encounter. And more importantly, judges have the ability to declare laws unconstitutional which agencies don't. So there were a lot of reasons to expect that maybe judges would behave differently. But this notion that maybe longer statutes might affect or constrain behavior of judges, we thought was a a question worth exploring empirically. and, And that's how we got started on the project. You know, I wonder if you could just give us maybe an example or, or, or an illustration without, without reading a full statute. Um, how might the same point be made with few words or with a lot of words? And, and you can imagine lots of situations where that difference, you know, it, it wouldn't make a difference whether you use 10 words or 20 words or 100 words. But is there an illustration that you can think of where, where this, this uh, uh, length um, does matter uh, in, a, in an example well, sure. I, you know, let's just take something very, very basic, like the, the notion that it's against the law to kill someone else. And, and we have statutes on the books about murder and manslaughter and negligent homicide. And they're all about killing, you know, an individual killing another individual. And it's not simple enough just to say something like, you shouldn't kill, you know, almost a biblical kind of thou shall not kill sort of thing. Because we know that 
in some cases, if you're if if you kill someone in self-defense, that's a completely different situation than if you you know plan out the murder of another individual. And so if you have a statute that says you shouldn't kill, well, that provides a whole lot of discretion to a judge to say, well, what was the context of this event? Was it justified? Were there mitigating factors? And it would be a whole lot different than if the, the law said you shouldn't kill with the exception of the following, self-defense or things along those lines. That latter statute has different examples, different exceptions, different definitions, difference between murder versus manslaughter, so to speak. And sort of by definition, then, to put all of that into a single law, that law would have to become larger. And, and that longer statute, we think, affects the ability of judges to render interpretations that may call up sort of their own ideological biases. So you model this statistically, and why don't you tell us a little bit about what, what you find? What is the effect of statutory detail? And, and talk. I'd be very interested in talking a little bit about these, these differences by ideology. Yeah, so what was, was kind of nice, we started this in a, a series of iterations, and our first examination looked at the U.S. Courts of Appeals, um, and we found very predictable patterns of behavior. I'll get into those in just a second. But we then examined the U.S. Supreme Court, thinking that this would be a harder environment to find the same pattern, if for no other reason than the Supreme Court has the ability to pick and choose which cases it wanted to hear. And if there was a case that involved a statute that limited the discretion of the justices, they could simply refuse to hear it, and we'd never know the difference. So we examine the U.S. Supreme Court, see very similar patterns, and then we took the examination one step further and looked at state Supreme Courts with state statutes and see the exact same pattern of behavior. So seeing this at different levels of the judiciary lead us to believe that there's something systematic going on. And, and essentially what we see is that in certain issue areas, some judges, if they're confronted with longer statutes, they are constrained from voting ideologically, but judges of the opposite sort of opposite side can use those longer statutes to actually justify voting in an ideological manner. So I'll give you an example, go back to the criminal statutes. Criminal laws, by and large, tend to be relatively conservative because they, they kind of prescribe the authority of the government over individuals. And longer criminal statutes constrain the ability of liberal judges to rule in favor of defendants. But at the same time, conservative judges can take those longer criminal statutes and uh, hand down even more conservative decisions, whether it's from a sentencing standpoint or from a criminal policy standpoint. Um, regardless, what we see is that the law 
works in a very dynamic way that intersects with the individual ideologies of judges and lays out these predictable patterns, which is kind of cool. It's not something that we expected, certainly didn't expect to see at all three levels of the courts. Yeah, it's, 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 it's really interesting. I, I, there's a sort of thousand questions that you'd, you'd want to ask in follow-up to, to these findings, but I wonder just sort of in the sake of, for the, in the interest of time, what would you make of these findings if you were writing legislation? Um, are there some takeaways for the those those that are that are in charge of the legislative process in terms of the outcomes that they want? Um, have you sort of thought in those terms? Yeah, yes, actually, um, working on a, a follow-up project right now that sort of captures exactly what you just said. I think the takeaway for legislators is that, quite simply, the words they put in a statute matter, and they can, the legislatures have the ability to write very detailed statutes if they wish. And those statutes have very predictable effects on bureaucrats and judges. The problem, though, as you know, legislatures, they're under tremendous pressures to compromise, to get a lot of votes, to make things make the wording relatively vague so that they don't get pinned down maybe in the next election. Um, and so there's all of these pressures on legislatures to create statutes that are somewhat ambiguous, and then they leave it up to agencies or judges to fill in the details. And when that happens, we shouldn't be surprised to see those actors use their discretion accordingly. But if legislatures wanted to, they could write detailed statutes that prescribed very specific outcomes, and those policies would get enacted and upheld later on by bureaucrats and by judges. It, the choice is really up to them. It's a really interesting, um, really interesting findings, a really um, innovative way that you've, you've gone about this. You just alluded to maybe another project, but is the one that you just described going to uh, turn into a book, or do you have another book project in you? Uh, I'm actually working on some different book projects right now. Uh, this one with the legislators, I don't know if that will turn into a book project or not. Right now, just kind of looking at a, maybe an article to see where things start and then sort of move from there. Yeah, I, I, I look forward to reading more. Uh, I, I enjoyed your, you. your current book, uh, Checking the Courts. Law, Ideology, and Contingent Discretion, uh, published by Kirk and his, his co-author Richard Waterman by SUNY Press, uh, published this year, available widely. Kirk, thank you very much for your time today. Thank you, Heath. I appreciate the invitation. <laughs>